Singh Bahadur's rebellion is over, and the Sikhs have been scattered. Lahore is in the hands of a powerful and oppressive ruler who has been tasked by his Mughal overlord to destroy the Sikhs. They have, however, tasted victory, and in a time of increasing turmoil, it is becoming apparent that it is a time when men who can ride, lead, and wield the sword might make a reputation for themselves. Before we begin the episode, we have a favor to ask of you. If you find this work compelling, please be sure to rate it and write a short review. That will definitely help us get the podcast to a wider audience. I also wanted to share some exciting news with you. If you've enjoyed the rich musical offerings in our episodes, check out our new endeavor, the Gourmets and Geet podcast. In Ode to Six Sacred Music, the podcast is a curated introduction to some of the finest live recordings in the genre. माली ने मोह पूछो यह भी मोह सुनाए बंदे को मरवाए के कह रहे हो खाल से जाए मरी asks the question pray tell me this too after banda had been killed what did the khalsas do to माली सो मैं यो कहयो इसी देश में खालसा रहयो बाज देशन जिम पंछी रहे सिंह अरण में जिम मृग बहे to Murray then I explained in Punjab they did remain like with falcons live the birds deer live with lions in that vein kich chakar kich jagiri lae kich dharm salan kich bungi bahaye kitan na kheti maaf karai im bhi turkan lae kitak chalai some entered service some lands acquired in gurdwaras or in towers dwelt some were from taxes exempt tricked by mughals others knelt tat khalso jo hote tin khai chalai nah nang bhukh dukh sir sahe marno na sankah the ones that were tat khalsa called they were not in the mughal sway scarcity hunger embraced ready to give their lives were they hote bhujangi jo sher bhayna turkan teve ghair rahe jhadan o jhundan maah turkan lut so mare khah doughty lads like lions brave they did the mughals resist hiding in forests and brush from attacking didn't desist ra turkan ko turn na de hain urar par mad daryao na rahe hain tat khal se sau sadave maran maran te na sankave halted the mughals in their tracks constantly on the move they tat khalsa they were called ever ready to join the fray according to ratan singh pangu after the death of banda singh bahadur the six were largely unbowed they remained in the punjab and though some of them did enter mughal service some even becoming landowners 
Many hid out in the forests, constantly on the move, harrying the Mughals as they went around their business. Here, a brief digression is in order. The Murray that Bungu mentions was Captain William Murray, who served as the assistant political agent at Ludhiana, deputy superintendent of Sikh and Hill affairs, and political agent at Umbala from 1815 until his death in 1831. The British political agency in Ludhiana was established in 1810 to serve as the key diplomatic channel between the British East India Company and the Sikh Empire. It was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel David Octroloni, and Murray was one of his three assistants. The British by then had subdued the entire Indian subcontinent, with the exception of the Sikh Empire, which they had concluded a treaty with. They were intensely curious about the Sikhs, and in particular about the origins of Sikh power. Ratan Singh Pangu belonged to the militant Akali or Nihang order of the Sikhs, and could trace his ancestry back to 18th century Sikh heroes. Captain Murray requested him to write a history of the Sikhs, which was the genesis of his opus, the Sri Guru Panth Prakash. Ratan Singh began the task in 1809 and completed it in 1841 after Murray's death. Drawing upon family lore transmitted orally through generations, as well as traditional Janamsakhi and Gurbila sources, he created a work of magnificence which captures the ebb and flow of Sikh history in poetry. The third season of the Story of the Six podcast draws heavily upon the Sri Guru Panth Prakash. George Forster, a servant of the East India Company in his work A Journey from Bengal to England, talks about the condition of the Sikhs in the years following Banda Singh Bahadur's execution. The defeat and death of Banda effected a total destruction of the power of the Sikhs and ostensibly an extirpation of their sect. An edict was issued by Farooq Sayar directing that every Sikh falling into the hands of his officers should be, on refusal of embracing the Muslim faith, put to the sword. A valuable reward was also given by the emperor for the head of every Sikh, and such was the keen spirit that animated the persecution and such the success of the exertions that the name of a Sikh no longer existed in the Mughal dominion. Those who still adhered to the tenets of Nanak either fled into the mountains at the head of the Punjab or cut off their hair and renounced the profession of their religion. The primary instrument of implementing Farooq Sayar's draconian policy 
was Abdusamad Khan, the governor of Lahore, whose forces had defeated and captured Bandasingh Bahadur at Gurdas Nangal, with the support of the Subedars or governors of Sarand and Jammu, he started to terrorize the Sikhs. Sri Bir Mirgesh Gurbilas Devtaru, a 19th century work by Pai Sher Singh, documents the persecution of the Sikhs. This is my attempted translation from Sadhuka, the dialect that Pai Sher Singh's opus is written in. And in those days, the ones that were called Sikhs were in dire straits. After the passing of the tenth guru, a great calamity faced the Sikhs. The Mughals hunted Sikhs everywhere, and there were no well-known Sikhs to be found in the towns or villages. They were not safe, even in the forests, and when the Mughals went looking for them, the residents of the villages, whether Hindu or Muslim, turned on them and informed on them. If a member of any household became a follower of the Gurus, his relatives would mourn him as if he were dead. The head of a Sikh fetched a bounty of 25 rupees, and a Sikh captured alive yielded 100. The aim of the Mughals was either to torture and kill Sikhs or to convert them to Islam. All wealthy Hindus would be robbed and plundered, and their comely daughters would be abducted and converted to Islam. When a Muslim died, Brahmins would be forced to dig his grave. Hindus would not be allowed to openly worship and perform their religious rituals. The earth, bowed by this burden of tyranny, was beseeching the Almighty for relief. The Khalsa Panth, or community, was fractured and leaderless, and several self-serving demagogues appeared across the Punjab, intent on benefiting from the chaos to increase their following and fortune. At the same time, however, a new crop of leaders was rising, as were new adversaries. The upshot was that the 18th century was to become the most turbulent time that the Khalsa Panth would ever know. was tumult in Delhi. Farooq Sayar had been on the Mughal throne for six years. He had been able to defeat his uncle Jahandar Shah, largely because of the support of Sayyid Abdullah Khan and Sayyid Hussain Khan, who had governed Allahabad and Bihar under his late father Azimushan. After he ascended to the throne, Sayyid Abdullah Khan was named his vizier or prime minister, and Sayyid Hussain Ali Khan was appointed the first bakshi or main paymaster of the army. Muhammad Amin Khan Chin Bahadur, who had seen action against the Sikhs, was appointed second bakshi. Other important figures in his court included Mir Jumla, who had also served Farooq Sayar's father, Azimushan, Nizamul Mulk, the governor of the Deccan, and Ajit Singh Rathor, 
the Raja of Marwad, who served as the governor of Gujarat. Ajit Singh was also Farooq Seyar's father-in-law, having given his daughter Indira Kumar to the emperor after his defeat by Hussain Ali Khan. Mir Jumla, who had been a Qazi in Dhaka and Patna, was bitterly opposed to the Sayyid brothers. Murshid Kuli Khan was the very capable governor of Bengal. The Sayyid brothers hailed from a village named Bara in the vicinity of Saharanpur. They came from a family of renowned warriors who had served in the vanguard of Mughal forces from the days of the Emperor Akbar. Their father, also named Sayyid Abdullah Khan, had served as the governor of Bijapur and then Ajmer under the Emperor Aurangzeb. They fought valiantly at the side of Bahadur Shah in the Battle of Jajau, and Sayyid Abdullah Khan eventually served as deputy to Prince Azimushan at Allahabad. His brother Sayyid Hussain Ali Khan also served under the prince at Azimabad. Muhammad Amin Khan, an immigrant from Samarkand, had been serving the Mughals from the time of Aurangzeb after his arrival in India at the age of 25. There was a powerful faction of Central Asians at the Mughal court, known as the Turanis, destined to play a significant role in the decades to follow. Muhammad Amin Khan became the leader of that faction over time. After the death of Bahadur Shah, he was in the service of Jahandar Shah, but when he was deployed against Farooq Siyar by the late emperor, he refused to engage at the Battle of Agra. His appointment as second Bakshi was a reward for his betrayal. Abdus Samad Khan, also from Samarkand, who had been appointed governor of Lahore by Farooq Siyar, was related to Muhammad Amin Khan by marriage, and was hence part of the Turani faction. Nizamul Mulk Asafja, also a Turani, was a nephew of Muhammad Amin Khan's. He had acquired prominence during Aurangzeb's reign as a valiant soldier and a provincial governor. After Bahadur Shah's accession, he was appointed governor of Awadh. After Bahadur Shah's death, he retired from public life having been a supporter of the prince Azimushan. Since his relatives, Abdul Samad Khan and Muhammad Amin Khan were favored by the Emperor Jahandar Shah, he was forgiven for his support of Azimushan and appointed to defend Agra. However, he defected to Farooqsiyar's side as well and was rewarded with the very important governorship of the six provinces of the Deccan. Tensions had started to build between the Sayyid brothers and Farooq Siyar from the very beginning of his reign. The brothers rightly viewed themselves as kingmakers and were furious when initially Sayyid Abdullah Khan was passed over for the post of Vazir. The emperor had relented, but a rift had formed, which courtiers like Mir Jumla exploited very effectively constantly warning the emperor about the ambitions of the Sayyid brothers. About a year after the defeat of Bandasingh Bahadur, the relationship between the emperor and the Sayyid brothers worsened even further. 
Mir Jumla's power and influence had grown, and he was constantly trying to subvert the vizier Sayyid Abdullah Khan's authority. Matters came to a head when Sayyid Hussein Ali Khan demanded that the governorship of the Deccan be taken away from Nizam ul Mulk and given to him, but the emperor refused instead deputing Sayyid Ali Khan to the Deccan in a subordinate position. Without the emperor's permission, Sayyid Hussain Ali Khan created an alliance with the Maratha chief Sahau Bhosle, allowing him to collect taxes in return for cash tribute and a commitment to provide 1,500 horsemen to the Sayyids. Anticipating a showdown with the Sayyids, the emperor mustered an army of more than 80,000 with the help of Nizamul Mulk, Sarbuland Khan, who was one of his commanders, and Raja Ajit Singh. However, he did not move against Sayyid Abdullah Khan, who was in a weak position then, and was simply content to dismiss him as a vizier. He appointed the highly unpopular Muhammad Murad Kashmiri in his place, alienating several powerful noblemen. His father-in-law, Raja Ajit Singh, who had been dismissed from his post in Gujarat, also switched sides, deserting the emperor and allying himself with the Sayyids. Sayyid Hussain Ali Khan marched from the Deccan, accompanied by 10,000 troops under the command of Peshwa Balaji Vishwanath Bhatt, they were joined by the forces of Raja Ajit Singh and Muhammad Amin Khan Chin Bahadur. A pitched battle was fought on 28 February 1719, in which Farooq Siyar was defeated. The emperor fled to the royal harem and took refuge in the women's quarters, refusing to listen to Sayyid Ali Khan's emissaries, who swore that he would not be deposed, and asking him to take his seat on the peacock throne of his forefathers. Khafi Khan, in his work, Muntakhab Ul-Lubab, writes about Farooq Siyar's end. Some Afghans and attendants and other traitors entered the palace. After much searching, Farooq Siyar was found hidden in a corner of the roof, to which they got a hint from some of the women. They dragged him out with great indignity. His mother, wife, and other ladies cried and wailed, throwing themselves at the feet of the Afghans and the attendants, at length, the conspirators dragged him away from the women, and having blinded him, placed him in confinement in a room at the top of the Tripolia in the fort. This was a small and narrow room like a grave, which had been used for keeping prisoners destined for torture. Ironically, the Emperor Jahandar Shah, who Farooq Siyar had deposed, had been held in that very room before he was strangled. The news that the emperor had been deposed had started to spread and there was unrest in the streets of Delhi. The Mughal throne could not stay unoccupied and a successor was needed. Prince Bidardil, son of Bidarbakht, a grandson of Aurangzeb, was chosen, and Sayyid Ali Khan sent his deputy Qadir Dad Khan to fetch him for his coronation. When he arrived at Bidardil's palace, the doors were barred. 
The news that the emperor had been imprisoned had terrified the women of the household, and anticipating that no prince was safe, they had hidden Bidardil in a closet. Qadirdad Khan broke down the door and entered the apartments to search for the missing emperor-to-be. Bidardil, however, was nowhere to be found. But the sons of the late Prince Rafiushan, Bahadur Shah's third son, were present. The women, refusing to believe that the men were really there to take Bidardil to his coronation, refused to produce him. In the meantime, the unrest in the city was growing, and Sayyid Hussain Ali Khan himself arrived accompanied by Raja Ajit Singh. According to William Irvine in his work The Later Mughals, in despair they turned towards the sons of Rafi Ushan and picked out of them Rafi Uddarjath, although he was the youngest of the three, in intelligence and judgment he was found to exceed his brothers. A new emperor had been found. Khafi Khan writes, Rafi Darjat was 20 years of age when he was brought out of confinement, and the noise and confusion was so great and general that there was not enough time to send him to the bath or to change his clothes. Sayyid Hussain Ali Khan took off his own pearl necklace and gave it to the youth as his only adornment for the coronation. With Raja Ajit Singh holding one hand and Sayyid Hussain Ali Khan the other, the new emperor was led to the Divane Am, or the audience chamber, where the fabled peacock throne had been placed a few days earlier for the celebration of the spring festival Navroz. The unwashed Rafiul Darjath, wearing crumpled clothes and a borrowed pearl necklace, was seated on the peacock throne and crowned the 10th Mughal emperor. According to William Irvine, Farooq was terribly mistreated during his brief imprisonment. He was deprived of water to bathe and given salty food that brought on diarrhea. The Sayyid brothers tried to persuade some of his former retainers to kill him, but when they refused, sent professional executioners who strangled him like his uncle the Emperor Jahandar Shah had been. Irvine mentions that another account suggests that Farooqsiyar tried to escape, jumping from one terrace roof to another before he was badly beaten, after which, anguished at the disgrace, he committed suicide by banging his head against a brick wall. Irvine dismisses the story as apocryphal. Ratan Singh Pangu offers a most colorful account of the emperor's end as well. So bhai gal patshah ki bande akhi saath farak ser andakiyo ral dwe sayyad bhrat Hear now ye the emperor's tale, as Banda Singh had foretold, Farooqsiyar was rendered blind by the Sayyid brothers bold. Hassan Khan Abdullah Khan kiyo kaid o takhte o thaan, kitak roz is bhaat bitae, nere marn shah din aye. Abdullah Khan and Khan Hussain deposed him and threw him in jail, and thus many days did pass. And approached of his life frail. 
ਬੰਦੇ ਬਚਣ ਹੋਣ ਬਿਦ ਸਾਤ ਆਈ ਸ਼ਾਹ ਕੇ ਇਹ ਦਿਲ ਬਾਤ ਲਈ ਘੋੜੀ ਥੀ ਲਾਏ ਜੋ ਪ੍ਰੀਤ ਰਹਿਓ ਚੜਨ ਉਸ ਮਧੇ ਚੀਤ ਬੰਦਾਸ ਵਰਡਸ ਵੁਡ ਕਮ ਟੂ ਪਾਸ ਅ ਫਾਟ ਐਂਟਰਡ ਦ ਐਮਪਰਸ ਮਾਈਂਡ ਹੀ ਹੈਡ ਅ ਮੇਅਰ ਥੈਟ ਹੀ ਮਚ ਲਵਡ ਟੂ ਰਾਈਡ ਹਰ ਥੈਨ ਹੀ ਵਾਸ ਇਨਕਲਾਈਨਡ ਇੱਕ ਦਿਨ ਕੀ ਅਸਵਾਰੀ ਨਾ ਕਰੀ ਰਹੀ ਮਣੇ ਕੀ ਮਨ ਮੈਂ ਪਰੀ ਲੋਕ ਕੁਸਾਮਦੀਨ ਕਹਿ ਦਿਓ ਗਿਰਦੇ ਤਖਤ ਅਸਵਾਰੀ ਕਰ ਲਿਓ ਹੀ ਹੈਡ ਨਾਟ ਰਿਡਨ ਫਾਰ ਮੈਨੀ ਅ ਡੇ ਆਫਨ ਹੀ ਹੈਡ ਥਾਟ ਆਫ ਇਟ ill intention sycophant said ride her lord don't care wit dig sha khub khadaye ke rakabe pair adwaye baithe asan jaye so to dheere dheere turave by the king the mare was brought in the stirrup went his foot mounted on the saddle then gingerly the mare afoot bande awaz hon bid furi chhut ghodi is hath te turi upro aan ill ik pari uske khadak ghodi bahdari were recalled then banda's words the mare bolted the reins were free from above a vulture swooped become the mare she would not be ghodi upro shah uchhar para bich rakabe pair rahyo ada ghodi natthi agge jaave magre shah ghasheet palmave from the saddle he was thrown foot was in the stirrup stuck faster still galloped the mare master dragged as she did buck ਦੋੜੇ ਲੋਕ ਚੁਫਰਿਓ ਪਰੇ ਤਿਮ ਤਿਮ ਘੋੜੀ ਬਹੁਤੀ ਡਰੇ ਘੋੜੀ ਕਹਿ ਮੋਹ ਦੇਉ ਲੱਗ ਰਹਿਓ ਸ਼ਾਹ ਘਸੀਟ ਹੀ ਮਰ ਗਏ try to stop the mare the men terrified faster ran the mare as if by a demon chased met the king thus his end there satra se ikasiye sal so bikram rae fark se aise mara kyo apno paaye 1781 of bikrami it was the year faruksiar in this way died day of reckoning it was here no matter what the manner of his death was the emperor who had reveled in the butchery of hundreds of six in his capital and the savage torture of bandasing bahadur was gone the emperor rafiul darjat did not rule for very long he died of tuberculosis after ruling for a little over 3 months the sayyid brothers crowned his older brother rafiul dola who ascended to the Mughal throne as Shah Jahan II. Three months later, he too had been taken by consumption. The Sayyid brothers, determined to find yet another puppet to sit on the throne, started looking for suitably pliable princes. Roshan Akhtar, the son of Bahadur Shah's youngest son, Jahan Shah, at the age of 17, was placed on the throne by the Sayyid brothers the 12th emperor in the line of Babur would be known as Muhammad Shah
Singh had unequivocally and publicly transferred his temporal power to the Khalsa at large, but the communal authority of the Panth had not yet been fully established. For eight years, there had been a visible leader in Banda Singh Bahadur, and after his passing, the relentless persecution of the Mughals made it impossible for the Panth to organize. A side effect of the persecution was the uprooting of a large body of Sikh peasants from the lands they tilled when they were forced to leave their homes to survive. This created a jacquerie of desperate, landless, defiant Sikhs, whose persecution on religious grounds only served to strengthen their faith even more. The Ganga Shahis were the followers of a man named Ganga who had been blessed by Guru Amar Das. The leader of their sect at that time was Kharak Singh, who aspired to become a great Sikh leader. He called the Sikhs, quote, widowed, because they had nobody to lead them, presumably intending to become the bridegroom himself. He started claiming to be the inheritor of Guru Gobind Singh's legacy by performing so-called miracles. The Khalsa Panth looked upon him with great suspicion because he fiercely opposed initiation through the Amrit ceremony, which Guru Gobind Singh had prescribed for all of his followers. Gulab Rai, the son of Surajmal, Guru Tegh Bahadur's brother and thus Guru Gobind Singh's cousin, emerged as another pretender to the throne. He declared himself to be the next guru of the Sikhs and started initiating his followers into the Gulabraya fold through the ancient ceremony of Charanpahul, during which acolytes drank water sanctified by the touch of their master's foot. The Hindalis were another sect started by a follower of Guru Amardas, Hindal of Jandiala. Bidhi Chand, Hindal's grandson, had an illicit relationship with a Muslim woman, and to justify his actions, he prepared a fake biography of Guru Nanak, which alleged that he too had taken a Muslim woman as his concubine, making the Sikhs furious. Mata Sundari, the widow of Guru Gobind Singh, had adopted a boy named Ajit Singh, who declared himself to be the next Sikh guru as well. He was, however, disowned by Mata Sundari and unable to build a large following in the Khalsa Panth. The greatest rift was between the Bandai Khalsa, who revered Banda Singh Bahadur, and the Tat Khalsa, traditional Sikhs, who viewed Banda Singh Bahadur as having usurped the authority that Guru Gobind Singh had bequeathed upon the Khalsa Panth. Karn Singh, the son of Guru Gobind Singh's beloved Sikh Binod Singh, had become one of the important leaders of the Tat Khalsa. We return now to Ratan Singh Pangu's account. Karn Singh kai bandeo judai, lai turkan siyo baat banai, rupayo panj se nit lain thehrayo, aswar panj se saath rakhayo. Setting the bandai aside to the Mughals, Karn Singh went, for the price of rupees 500, 500 horse they gave consent. Neel bastri sir chak sajaye, rehta bhujangi reet rakhaye. 
ਬੜੇ ਬਾਣੀ ਅਰਦਾਸੇ ਕਰੇ ਦੰਗਿਓ ਪੰਗਿਓ ਨਹਿਨਾ ਟਰੇ garments blue on turbans quiets the khalsa wave was theirs again time again for scripture prayer to refrain from fighting did not deign bangi kasai dere na aave dur turkan te dere rakhave rehna amritsar tho kar leyo mela lavan bhi likh leyo butchers and muzains at bay far from the mughals they stayed a camp in amritsar was formed call for annual gathering made take aave jo chadti maah dene khal se mujre taah samo mele ko pahunchyo aayi kaan singh likhyo sangat taai some of the offerings the sikhs would bring as taxes were for the mughals meant as approached the gathering date garnishing to six letters sent hum turkan so kar layi gal beshak ayo sri amritsar chal lahor pashor o dilli tai ai sangat chatarfo dhai with the moguls i have talked to amritsar you may come from peshawar dilli lahor stream six all directions from turkan ko mukh ban leyo yo gal bhai mashhoor qasam quran turkan kari bhayo sikhan bahut dur with the moguls a compromise news spread far and wide on the quran they made a vow in no sikh did fear abide singan aur turkan ne jab kar leyo qarar sangat ki rakhi rakho desh turkan likhe ishtihar the six and moguls struck a deal both sides vowed to it uphold proclamations far and wide you will be safe all six were told turkan likhyo nij thane daran hoye na dange kahu sangat varan amritsar in diyo pahunchaye rakho hifazat inko rahe mughal chiefs their men commanded sikh pilgrims must be left alone get them safe to amritsar there in your charge let it be known das hazar das likh hote so jo mele maah das din le mela rahe rakhyo hifazat taah a tax of 10000 gold coins from the pilgrims would accrue 10 days the pilgrims would abide their safety guaranteed in lieu thatti sikhan chit dhar yahu ते संसो गयो मरे सो सतगुरु द्वार जीवन ते मरनो भलो सिक्स डिटरमिन टुक द रोड अश्योरेंसेस डिड फियर्स अले इवन डेथ एट द गुरुस डोर वी विल एम्ब्रेस वर हर्ड टू से तब सिख संगत बहुत चल आए आन चढ़ावे बहुत चढ़ाए दर्ब बहुत सो चढ़ती करी दे तुरकण बो बाकी धरी to amritsar did the faithful stream to the six rich offerings flowed the riches that the faithful brought partly were to the mughals owed matters came to a head on the occasion of diwali in 1720 the golden temple saw a huge assemblage of six who had come from lands near and distant after being told that a truce was in place with the mughals such rich offerings had never been seen before and according to ratan singh pangu the bandai khalsa became envious 
देख बंदियन जलती आवे लगे मंगण कर चढ़ती दावे कहो खाल से तुम दावो काह हम तुम मेल रखियो को नाह विद Envy bandais burned on the offering stake to claim your claim is baseless khalsa said we are cleft we're not the same tum fate darsani hum gur ke fate tum bisnoi hum char barn mate tum suho pehro hum lave na ang hum pehre surmai tum raho sang fate darshan greeting you mouth Vishnu you your deity deem red robes you wear we do abjure our blue robes to hate you seem nahi amritsar tum kahu thah nahi lehyo chadhave agge tumah hudo bandiyan chit bad garv bangu bande ki sangat sarb amritsar was never bandas how can you this income claim bandais proud and arrogant bandas faith embrace proclaim satgur de gayo bande karamat ko rahyo na sodi karni jog baat samjhe na murakh panth kiyo khala ya main pai sab gur kala the guru's power in banda vested forget about the guru's clan oblivious to the khalsa's rise and the guru's master plan tab gal unki nah puji bhai dwe mele par gal dango karno un thatheo bandai utre te ik wal das denied the bandai fumed next year see we shall prevail they would take their share by force a camp in amritsar avail bandiyan dera ik wal laya jhande bunge dig bagal bagal aaya kit roni kit baad gadwai darshani darwaje ki dab bahi the bandais then set up camp seized some standards towers they fences built and channels dug right next to the shrine's archway kitanan chhaye chhappar chhann bahe bandai aaye kar fann utwal dere bandiyan kare lave ralaye jo unme rale makeshift shelters and thatched homes on strength of forested bandais dwell and once they had set up camp they worked hard their ranks to swell an immediate conflagration was avoided because of the intervention of level-headed six like garnsing but it seemed the stage was set for a battle that would pit six against six in a time of great peril Word of the conflict got to Mata Sundari in Delhi and she decided to intervene. She dispatched Pai Mani Singh, one of the late Guru's most beloved Sikhs and widely respected by all, to Amritsar. He was asked to take charge of the Sri Harbandar Sahib as the head Granthi or custodian of the Guru Granth Sahib. He was also given instructions to mediate between the Tat Khalsa and the Bandai Khalsa. We now turn to the Shaheed Bilas, a biography of Pai Mani Singh written by the poet Seva Singh. Amar Singh ye aakh de dasam guru ji aap banda sahib ko gyar maa guru gaye si thaap. 
Amar Singh was heard to say, the tenth guru, it has been said, his successor Banda named, told him to rule in his stead. Akal purkhiye yu kahya Sri Satgur Farman, Granth Panth Gurmaneo, Take Sakal Kulan. The Khalsas were heard to respond, No, that was not the Guru's word. Granth and Panth he made supreme. Blessed would be the tribe entire. That is what we heard. In his commentary on the Shaheed Bilas, Pai Garja Singh indicates that Amar Singh was a highly respected Khalsa who hailed from the Kamkaran area. His wife had helped him carry Banda Singh's remains to Jammu after he had been executed in Delhi. Some of the Bandai Khalsa had anointed him as their leader once they took up residence at the Sri Harbandar Sahib. He was referred to as Mahant Amar Singh, and his being awarded that title was a constant source of irritation to the Tat Khalsa. The Tat Khalsa had made the Akal Bunga the precursor to the Akal Takht as their headquarters. Pai Mani Singh took control of the Golden Temple complex and made sure that everything, including the Guruka Langar, the community kitchen, functioned smoothly and that all the pilgrims were ministered to. He tried to mediate between the Tat Khalsa and the Bandai Khalsa, but found both groups to be absolutely obstinate. While the dispute was still unresolved, all the collections that came in were deposited with a reputable banker from the town of Amritsar. The large gathering of Basakhi was approaching and Paimani Singh feared that violence would break out between the two groups. He decided that it was time to put an end to the fight and he reached out to the leaders of both factions. With the concurrence of the leaders, Paimani Singh sent for two pieces of paper. On one, he wrote the Bandai greeting, Fateh Darshan, and on the other, the traditional greeting, Vaheguru Ji Ka Khalsa, Vaheguru Ji Ki Fateh. Mani Singh Jab Dekhano Aai, Jhagda Bohat Vadat Hai Jai, Tab Tin Dono Ko Samjhaye, Patiya Likh Di Taal Sutaye, Jis Ki Tare Ujano Sacha, Dube Jeh Ki Ujano Kacha, Dube Gai Bandiyan Keri, Tari Nihangan Ki Sab Heri, Seva Hari Kahe Ardaas, Hey Satgur, main tera das. Mani Singh could clearly see Sirius had the quarrel become. Council-wise, he gave sides both to a decision he had come. In the pool, cast papers to the victor's paper, it will rise. To the bottom will the losers sink. Thus decided the sage wise, sank to the bottom the Bandai slip, floated the other all could see, in gratitude the faithful prayed, true guru we bow our heads to thee. There were a few murmurs of discontent, but by and large the Bandai Khalsa accepted by Mani Singh's verdict. The Bandai were absorbed into the body of the Khalsa and the rupture was largely healed. The Khalsas were now the recognizable and accepted heirs to the Guru. The other pretenders by then had become largely irrelevant. 
There was a need now to create an infrastructure and institutions to lead the Khalsa Panth. Fortunately, waiting in the wings was a new generation of leaders that would be equal to the task. Singh, in his work, Jeevan Brithant Nawab Kapoor Singh writes about the Vasakhi of 1721. Uh, this is translated from the original Punjabi. Vasakhi of 1721 was celebrated with great splendor at the Sri Harbandar Sahib by a resurgent community under the stewardship of Bhai Mani Singh. The greatest success of the gathering was the initiation of a large number of men and women into the order of the Khalsa through the Amrit Sanchar ceremony of Guru Gobind Singh. Among the thousands initiated by Pai Mani Singh with his own hands was a strapping young man named Kapoor Singh. Brik Goth, Jimidar, Tahaka Basanwar, Tha Dalip Singh Bhar Turkan Santayo Hai, Kapoor Singh Dan Singh Doha Putra Samet, Mani Singh Ji Sudha Chak Muda Payo Hai. In the clan of Virks, a Zamindar, Dalip Singh was his name, Kapoor Singh Dan Singh, his two sons, all of them to Amritsar came from the hands of Mani Singh, the Guru's Amrit, they did claim. Abdus Samad Khan was getting old, and the resurgence of the Sikhs around Amritsar was seen as an indication of his failure to rein them in. The Mughals established a thana or police post in Amritsar to keep an eye on the Sikhs and tried to harass them at every turn. But they met with limited success and were defied by the multitudes that poured into the city. Abdul Samad Khan had many enemies in the court of Muhammad Shah who prevailed upon the emperor to recall him from Lahore. He was transferred to Multan, which was a province of much less importance. The wily Abdul Samad Khan, however, made sure that he flattered the emperor, plying him with expensive gifts to secure the plum governorship of Lahore for his son, Zakaria Khan. The year was 1726. Baba Prem Singh describes a massacre that occurred the same year in a village close to Amritsar. While in itself, it did not seem to be of much consequence, for Sikhs were often slaughtered in the reign of both Abdul Samad Khan and Zakaria Khan, it was to have profound ripple effects through the Khalsa Panth. In the village of Vaan, close to Amritsar, also known as Dalvan, lived a devout Khalsa named Tara Singh. He had built a fortified tower in his village, which served as a refuge for the Khalsa in the difficult times they were living through. Tara Singh, in the Sikh tradition, had also instituted Guruka Langar, where food was offered to all. 
The Chaudhry, or chief of a neighboring village, Sahib Rai, frowned upon the activities in Dalva and decided to complain about Tara Singh to Mirza Jafar Beg, the commander of the village of Patti. He accused Tara Singh of harboring horse thieves as well as outlaws at odds with the Mughals and feeding them. Mirza Jafar Beg assembled a large force of horsemen and attacked Tara Singh's tower, unleashing a barrage of matchlock fire on the six. The defenders fired back, and the standoff continued until the evening when the six left the tower and charged, scattering the army from Patti. The defeated Mirza Jafar Beg petitioned Zakaria Khan to ask for reinforcements and a large force was sent under the command of Momen Khan to besiege Dalva. Tara Singh and his fellow Sikhs, greatly outnumbered and outgunned, fought valiantly. When they ran out of ammunition, they launched themselves at the Mughal force with naked steel. The end was inevitable. All the Sikhs, including Tara Singh, were slaughtered. In Baba Prem Singh's words... News of the murder of the saintly and benevolent Paitara Singh spread like wildfire. It galvanized young Sikhs into action. Hundreds swore that they would dedicate their lives to the Khalsa Panth as they abandoned their occupations and took up arms. Among the moths that were attracted to the flame of self-sacrifice, the name of Kapoor Singh is worth mentioning. He left his home and his family and with great determination traveled to Amritsar to join the band of Divan Darbara Singh. Divan Darbara Singh was one of the mightiest leaders of the Sikhs at the time. A resident of Sarand, he had been initiated into the Khalsa Panth by Guru Gobind Singh himself. He had distinguished himself during the Battle of Anandpur and had been the chief deputy of Binod Singh, another of Guru Gobind Singh's beloved Khalsas, who had accompanied Banda Singh Bahadur on his mission from Nandir. In his work, Sketch of the Sikhs, a singular nation who inhabit the provinces of the Punjab, situated between the rivers Jamna and Indus, John Malcolm, who travelled in the Punjab in the 18th century, describes a Sarbat Khalsa that he witnessed. The Akalis, he mentions, were a militant order of the Sikhs known as Nihangs. As an aside, Ratan Singh Pangu was an Akali as well. When the chiefs and principal leaders are seated, the Ad Granth and the Dasma Padshaka Granth are placed before them. They all bend their heads before these scriptures and exclaim, Vaheguru Ji ka Khalsa, Vaheguru Ji ki Fateh. A great quantity of cakes made of wheat, butter and sugar are then placed before the volumes of their sacred writings and covered with a cloth. These holy cakes, which are in commemoration of the injunction of Nanak to eat and to give to others to eat, next receive the salutation of the assembly who then rise and the Akalis pray aloud while the musicians play. The Akalis, when the prayers are finished, desire the council to be seated. They sit down, 
and the cakes being uncovered and eaten by all classes of Sikhs, the Akalis then exclaim, Sardars, this is a Gurmata, on which prayers are again said aloud. They then proceed to consider the danger with which they are threatened, to settle the best plans for averting it, and to choose the generals who are to lead their armies against the common enemy. Divan Darbara Singh presided over the Sarbat Khalsa that was held, and the following Gurmata or resolution was issued after long deliberations. The administration would not be allowed to fill its treasury. Revenues from the surrounding areas would be seized by the Khalsa. Imperial armories would be raided in order to acquire arms for the Khalsa. Imperial stables would be attacked as well to ensure that a cavalry could be raised. Those who sympathized with the Mughal administration and collaborated with it would be punished. A new rebellion was starting. The young Kapoor Singh, who had distinguished himself during the deliberations, attracted the notice of the Jathedar or commander Divan Darbara Singh and very quickly rose to become his right-hand man. was not one to sit idly by, he stepped up his efforts to repress the Sikhs and continued to offer a bounty on every Sikh head, which seemed to yield some results. Gani Gyan Singh in Shamsher Khalsa writes that some Hindus and Muslims were tempted by the bounty and started turning Sikhs in. Criminals started decapitating women regardless of their faith and grasping the severed heads by their long hair took them to police posts claiming that they were bringing the heads of sick children. Soon there were no Sikhs left in the villages. The elderly and the children were mostly sent to the Malva region and all able-bodied men formed small armed bands that never stayed in one place. The repression had some unexpected consequences. Agriculture and commerce in the villages came to a grinding halt, but revenue officials still tried to squeeze zamindars for their dues which they were unable to pay. The ill will created by this drove many into the arms of the Khalsa and their ranks began to grow. The Khalsas were intransigent in the face of Zakaria Khan's repression. They sought out collaborators and informants who had turned Sikhs in and punished them. Kapoor Singh was placed at the head of a well-armed contingent that was chartered with patrolling the lands of the Majja. The Khalsa looked for every opportunity to implement the Gurmata 
issued at the Sri Harmandir Sahib. Word got to them that the revenues of Multan were being sent to the Imperial Treasury in Delhi via Lahore with a detachment of 200 horsemen for protection. A band of 400 Khalsa horsemen fell upon them at the Kundia district of Lahore. Half the Imperial Guard was slaughtered and the Khalsa made off with 400,000 rupees as well as the horses and weapons of the defeated men. Two months later, a band of six under the command of Jathedar Darbara Singh himself attacked a caravan carrying revenues from Kasur and netted a booty of 200,000 rupees. Murtaza Khan was a wealthy merchant who procured horses in large numbers from Khurasan, Waziristan and Iran for the Mughal army. On his way to Delhi with several hundred horses and cartloads of weapons, he was ambushed by Kapoor Singh, whose informers had alerted him of the impending arrival of the caravan. It was a windfall for the Khalsa, who had been very poorly equipped. After the raid, all of Darbara Singh's band had excellent mounts that would have done the imperial cavalry proud. The loss of revenue of Multan and Kasur and the looting of Murtaza Khan's caravan caused great alarm in Delhi. Reinforcements were rushed to Lahore to supplement Zakaria Khan's forces and they redoubled their efforts to subdue the Khalsa. The Khalsa, however, were undeterred. Sardar Buddha Singh and Sardar Bagh Singh attacked the caravan of Muhammad Mir Jafar a Mughal official on his way to Delhi from Peshawar, laden with gold and silver. The fast-moving Khalsa struck his caravan as it was trying to cross the Bias River close to Goindwal and were gone with their plunder in a flash. A unique and lucrative opportunity seemed to present itself in the year 1727, Jathedar Darbara Singh and Kapoor Singh were in the vicinity of Hargobindpur when they got word of a rich caravan loaded with expensive Kashmiri shawls and other luxury goods bound for Delhi. It was the caravan of Pratap Chand, a wealthy trader from Sialkot who had business interests in Delhi, Banaras, Murshidabad and Surat. He mostly traded in expensive goods such as pashmina shawls, Kashmiri carpets, saffron, and musk. When the caravan halted for the night, the Khalsa pounced on it, overpowered the guards, and decamped with goods worth hundreds of thousands of rupees. They took with them the pack animals that were used to carry the goods along with their drivers, from the drivers, the Khalsa learned that the goods were owned by Pratap Chand, and while he was indeed taking them to the imperial household in Delhi, the sale had not yet been made, and the entire loss would be his. The Jathedar declared that the Khalsa's fight was with the authorities, and it would be wrong to rob the trader. Everything taken from the caravan was returned. What the Khalsas lost in plunder, they gazed a thousandfold in reputation when word got around that they had returned everything to Pratap Chand.
For three years, the Khalsa blocked the flow of revenues from Punjab to Delhi. Zakaria Khan was in disgrace, and the Emperor Muhammad Shah made his displeasure known. In 1729, 2,000 Rohila Afghans under the command of Habat Khan and Abdullah Khan were dispatched to the Punjab to deal with the Khalsa and collect revenues due from Lahore. A fine of 5,000 rupees per day was to be imposed on Zakaria Khan if the administration showed any trace of slackness in raising the revenue. A new reign of terror began. Under pressure from Habat Khan and Abdullah Khan, Zakaria Khan cracked down on his subordinate chiefs, who fanned out into the countryside to extract what they could from an already impoverished peasantry. In Shamsher Khalsa, Gani Gyan Singh describes the pitiful conditions of the Rayots or peasants. Fearful of robbers and already impoverished, the peasants had earthen griddles in their homes. Even their metal pots and pans had been stolen or sold. The desperate peasants, starting selling their children for the paltry sum of 10 rupees each, the revenue collection, unsurprisingly, was pitiful. Nawab Zakaria Khan came up with a diabolical plan. He sold some of his family valuables, took out loans, and managed to prepare a caravan loaded with money and goods for Habat Khan and Abdullah Khan to take to Delhi. It was nowhere close to the sum due to the imperial treasury, but he spread the tribute over 80 carts to make his offering look more impressive than it really was. Then he summoned Subeg Singh, an Arabic and Persian-speaking Sikh trader and contractor. He suggested to Subeg Singh that if the caravan, which once it left the precincts of Lahore, would be the exclusive responsibility of Habat Khan and Abdullah Khan, were to be looted en route to Delhi, he, Zakaria Khan, would be absolved of his responsibility. Subhaik Singh was only too happy to oblige the Nawab, and he quickly sent word to the Khalsa. As soon as the Khalsa got wind of the opportunity, they sent a force of 4,000 to Sarai Nurdin in the Tarantaran district. The Khalsa force was divided into two sections, and the first one struck early in the morning, engaging the Rohillas fiercely and then quickly retreating. The Rohilla Afghans, thinking that they had triumphed, fell headlong into the trap and set out in pursuit. This gave the second band of the Khalsa the opportunity to plunder the caravan, which they proceeded to do with great efficiency before melting into the woods. The Khalsa took their plunder to Jabal and triumphantly placed it before Jathedar Darbara Singh and Hari Singh, who was in charge of the Langar. The Jathedar took a tenth of the plunder as an offering to the Khalsa Panth and sent it to Pai Mani Singh in Amritsar. The rest was equally distributed among the men. Several freebooters who had assisted them were also given their fair share, and they joined the ranks of the Khalsa joyously. 
It was a pyrrhic victory for the Khalsa. Habath Khan and Abdullah Khan blundered about for a few days, looking for the Khalsas who had plundered their caravan and finally limped back into Lahore. The wily Zakaria Khan wrote to the Emperor Muhammad Shah, putting into motion a devious plan to salvage his reputation, which was in tatters because of the Sikhs. Gani Gyan Singh captures this in the Shamsher Khalsa. This is a translation from the original Punjabi. I had sent 80 cartloads of treasure, discharging my complete debt to the imperial treasury under the guard of 4,000 men. The infidels attacked the caravan, scattered our troops, and stole everything. The rebels have brought agriculture to a complete halt. The poor peasants are starving and have been completely devastated. I can guarantee that there will be no revenue collection in the future unless we act. The only way to crush this rebellion is for you to send a very large force to Lahore. Zakaria Khan's plan was successful. The Emperor Muhammad Shah dispatched a force of 20,000 under the command of Safdar Khan, Jafar Jung and Maniam Khan. Their mission was to completely destroy the criminal tribe, the Sikhs. Zakaria Khan was tasked with providing intelligence on the villages and forts of the Khalsa to the imperial army. The year was 1730. Nawab Zakaria Khan was not yet done with his machinations. He sent word to the Khalsa leadership through Subeg Singh, warning them that the imperial army was coming. The Khalsa forewarned lay in wait in the vicinity of Sarand. There was a skirmish at Sarand, followed by another one at Harikepatan. The forces of Jalandhar and Lahore joined the imperial army, and Zakaria Khan's men directed the Mughals towards Multan, where they said the Sikhs had many encampments in small forts, villages, and in the woods. The Mughal soldiers suffered severe hardships in the brush, and were defeated by the inhospitable terrain, the scarcity of water, and the unfamiliar food with bread made from millet flour. Constantly harried by bands of Sikhs, the demoralized troops made their way to the safety and comfort of Lahore. Zakaria Khan had made his point. A large imperial force led by commanders hand-picked by the court in Delhi, had failed to bring the Sikhs to heel. There was a danger, however, that their successes would embolden the Sikhs even further and make them completely intractable. He divided the demoralized imperial force into several sections and allotted some of his most trusted lieutenants who were familiar with the hideouts of the Sikhs to each. The soldiers started systematically burning the forests where the Sikhs usually concealed themselves to evade pursuit. The Sikhs were forced to scatter even more widely. Some fled to the hill states, and others rode to the barren and inhospitable deserts of Rajasthan. Several Sikhs and Hindus embraced Islam, fearing for their lives. 
Any intransigent sick peasants who dared to stay behind to continue farming their lands were brutally killed. Once all the known Sikhs were killed or had fled, the soldiers started putting anyone who had a long hair and beard to sword. Nawab Zakaria Khan's prestige was restored, albeit temporarily. The imperial force, which had floundered on its own, had been spectacularly successful in its mission under the Nawab's guidance. It was impossible for Zakaria Khan to maintain the same level of repression once the imperial force had returned to Delhi. Once again, small bands of Sikhs started mushrooming all over Punjab, many returning from the hills and the deserts. Over the next three years, the Khalsa leaders held numerous initiation ceremonies to welcome those who had forcibly been converted to Islam back into the Khalsa fold. In 1733, Kapoor Singh collected a large contingent of Khalsa with the intention of traveling to Amritsar. They were in the vicinity of Ropar when they got into a scrap with a contingent of the imperial forces. Their commander engaged Kapoor Singh in hand-to-hand combat, and just before he was cut down, he desperately swung his sword and connected with his foe's forehead. The cut was very deep, But Kapoor Singh, after dealing with the Mughal soldiers, decided to press on and reached Amritsar with his men despite his wound. His exploits garnered him great fame and he came to be recognized as the most valiant of the Khalsa commanders. Once again, Sikhs started roaming the countryside unimpeded, making it impossible for Zakaria Khan to collect revenue, maintain order, and govern his province effectively. Gani Gyan Singh writes about his anguished state of mind, expressed in a letter to the emperor. I have spared no effort to destroy the Sikhs, but this tribe will simply not be defeated. They are impoverished. They have no lands, or forts, or treasure. Their master, Guru Gobind Singh, has infused such a spirit into them that they seem to be unaffected by sorrow, hunger, or any other form of hardship. If I kill a thousand, four thousand spring up to replace their fallen comrades. I have been told that their Guru has taught them the secret of making the elixir of immortality. Maybe this is why they cannot be eliminated. I fear that these Sikhs will overpower us in Punjab and will then turn their eyes towards Delhi. I fear that your existence will be blighted just as mine has been. At his wit's end, the governor of Lahore decided that perhaps he needed to take a different approach. He hatched a new plan but it was going to be a hard sell at the imperial court. The 
The Story of the Six is written and narrated by Sarpreet Singh, author of Night of the Restless Spirits, a collection of short fiction that examines the tumultuous events of 1984 from many different angles. His previous book, The Camel Merchant of Philadelphia, tells the stories of many colorful characters who populated the court of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. The Story of the Six is produced by Almost Media. Our theme music is a rendition of a traditional Sikh hymn by the late Bai Avtar Singh. This episode features a rendition of Raga Hamir on guitar by Ritom Sarkar, accompanied by Amit Kavtekar on tabla. Season 3 of Story of the Six is sponsored by the Chardi Kala Foundation, the Sawani Family Foundation, and Manpreet Kaur and Ishdeep Singh. I'm co-producer and audio engineer Erica Wong. Thank you for joining us.